attack each other all the time. It's like it's like dealing with a with a pack of wolves. Survival of the fittest mentality with Mike Tyson. Survival of the boss. So the basically the the hierarchy of archaeology encourages young archaeologists to buy into the theories of older archaeologists because if they don't if they challenge those theories, then they're not going to get recognition, they're not going to get research funding, they're not going to get grants, and fundamentally they're not going to be able to do the work. So there's, there's moral pressures in the discipline to conform and, mm. to fit, and to fit with what the discipline says. Um, and and uh, this in, inevitably re results in the, in the criticism of my work. I'm very happy for my work to be criticized. Mm -hmm. Criticism is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I'm very happy for that. What I'm not happy about is the lazy, idle way in which they just casually dismiss me as a pseudoscientist mm. or a pseudo-archaeologist and use woke labels to, 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 to try to diminish my impact further. I think they need to work harder right -wing, uh, if they're going to put this down. And that's why I celebrate the fact that Netflix took the risk of putting this series out there with my contrary views, uh, which archaeologists despise, uh, reject, and detest. When you stay at a Verbo, the host doesn't stay with you. Because without privacy in your vacation... By any chance, there's a tribe of people off of what is it, New Zealand? Mm. What's that island again? And they came from Africa. They've been there for, what, I think 60,000 years on that island? Yeah. The black tribe. Some guy, some guy from... One of the, one of the uh, missionary guys, Jesus, praise the Lord, let me save you. And they do spears, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. They kill that, you know that, right? I do know, I do know What's that. What's that all about? Well, there, there are, um, I mean, for example, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt that human beings came first from Africa. This is a fact. Uh, Africa, Africa is the origin of the human story. Sudan. And it's clear that there were many migrations out of Africa. Uh, going back actually millions of years, if we if we take into account Homo erectus, uh, and some of those migrations uh, were sixty or seventy thousand years ago. So the Australian uh, Aborigines are are a people who've been on the Australian landmass for sixty or seventy thousand years, and, and and that's no easy task. They had to get all the way from Africa. They had to cross the sea, and wow. they ended up and they ended up in Australia. Um, and you know also crazy. They ended up way in Australia when they could have crossed the sea and went to, Par to the Paris. Well, yes, <laughs> but they did that as well. They did. They, they they did that as well. They went everywhere. It's just that Northern Europe during the Ice Age was a pretty unpleasant place to be. Half of it was covered with a, an ice cap that was at least a mile deep, or maybe two miles deep. It was very cold. It was very unpleasant, and uh, it didn't support it didn't support large populations. So people naturally tended to stay in southern areas rather than northern areas. Think it's something under the North Pole. Um, under the North Pole, probably not much because because it's largely just sea ice. But under South. Antarctica, the South Pole. Now that's an interesting proposition. Yeah. And again, it's another area which has not been studied by archaeology mm. for two reasons. Firstly, because it's extremely expensive to go do archaeology in Antarctica. And secondly, because they're convinced they're not going to find anything there, that it's been ice covered for hundreds of millions of years. But Antarctica is is a mass, it's a continent-sized <laughs> landmass. It has solid ground <laughs> under it. The, the ice sits on top of islands, huge, huge islands. Uh, and I don't think that we can, I don't think that archaeologists have a right to claim that they've got the whole human story taped 
without taking Antarctica into account, without doing some work there. And the same goes for the Amazon rainforest, five million square kilometers covered by dense canopy, old growth rainforest, never really studied by archaeologists. And the tiny little bit of research that's being done now, the new imaging it. that's coming in from LIDAR work, which, which shows you what's under the canopy without destroying so it, it, suggests that there, there are enormous discoveries to be made in the Amazon. Then the other really important place is the Sahara Desert, Africa again. Nine million square kilometers of Sahara Desert, which was green during the Ice Age and is desert now. Just because it's desert now doesn't mean it was always desert. And by and large, there's very... Ay, caramba. Just because it's desert now doesn't mean it was always desert. And by and large, there's very little archaeology done in the Sahara Desert. So there's huge areas of our planet. The last one is the continental shelf covered by the 400-foot rise in sea level at the end of the Ice Age. You know, what's sitting underwater that we haven't that we haven't found yet? Huge areas of our planet, the plain fact is, have never received the attention of archaeologists. So it's premature for archaeologists to say they've got the whole story. Yeah. I on television. Seven miles at the bottom of the ocean, mm -hmm. seven miles deep. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom of the ocean, seven miles, there's another giant black hole. Mm -hmm. But nothing to can't go in it. I haven't come across that, but it oh. sounds intriguing. Oh, it is. The bottom of the floor, big black hole. Yeah. Can't penetrate, so dense. Well, the truth is just that we don't know exactly who or what we are. We don't know who or what our planet is either. I mean, we just scratch, scratch the surface of the skin of our planet, of the crust of the Earth, and not really the inner layers. There's all, yeah. all kinds of theories about yeah. what it is, but, but no facts. Kind of like uh, the Mountain of Enlightenment, when you guys, and then your show... You In guys, Indonesia. Uh, yeah, you guys dug, and then you had... I don't want to get it wrong, but it was like certain years yes. of soil. So this is a site called Gunung Padang uh -huh. in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. um, and in the particular part of Java, they speak a language called Sundanese. Uh -huh. And in the Sundanese language, Gunung Padang means mountain of light or mountain of enlightenment. Mm. It doesn't mean that in the Indonesian language. It means mountain field in the Indonesian language. But in the Sundanese language, there it is. Yeah. It means mountain of enlightenment. And this, uh, this site was ignored for a very long time. Weirdly, it was thought to be totally natural, mm -hmm. although, although how something like that could be yeah. natural beats me. Um, and then a little bit of investigation was done digging very shallowly. They found evidence of people maybe a thousand plus years ago, but then they went deeper. They found evidence that humans had been there 5,000 years ago. Then they went deeper still and evidence of human beings 24,000 years ago nice. and evidence of large man-made chambers I remember inside this mass. Amazing. And we have a fantastic uh, Indonesian uh, geologist, Danny Hillman Natwijaja, who's been doing this research. He's a leading geologist, top specialist in his field, and he's convinced that we're dealing with a 24,000-year-old monument, nice. which was built at the time when the world looked very different. During the Ice Age, when sea level was, was 400 feet higher than it is today, you didn't have the Malaysian Peninsula, you didn't have the Indonesian islands, they were all joined in one huge landmass. This was part Sumatra. of the highlands of that landmass. Uh, and then the sea levels rose and most of it got submerged beneath the ocean. But structures like this have survived because they were never covered by the ocean. And, and the evidence suggests that, they were, that they're the work of an unrecognized civilization of prehistory. Yeah, yeah, I loved I love that uh that episode. What's the grass Tyson talking about? Well, whatever the 
Oh, you can be sure it's endorsed by the mainstream. Hell yeah. He's a company man, he's a very good talker, quite entertaining, but he never goes against the trend. He's always he's always supporting what the mainstream view is rather than rather than challenging it in any way. And and I think it's important it's important to challenge mainstream views. They shouldn't allow they shouldn't be allowed to have a monopoly. On, on our understanding of the past and our understanding of who and, and what we are. Well, we really appreciate you because we need someone like you to tell these fools to need to rewrite history. I see down there, just underneath the grass Tyson, there's another passage of thoughts on flat earth conspiracy theories. Yeah, conspiracy theories 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 theories. I have to say, the earth is not flat. <laughs> <laughs> we live on this huge ball in space. Definitely, um, and 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 uh, I, I I just have no doubt about that. It's an unnecessary thing. Why is the Earth yeah. flat? Yeah. Is it, what, what is it? Even if it was flat, who cares? Uh, I mean, we're here as a we're we're here to live our lives and hopefully to live them well. But the Earth is not flat, and the ancients knew this. The ancients knew this forever. The ancient Egyptians knew this. Everybody knows that the Earth is that the Earth is not flat. You just need to just need to stand on a on a cliff and look at a distant ocean horizon and see a ship come towards you, and you'll see the the tunnel of the ship first before you see the the deck of the ship. Mm-hmm. That's because it's coming around a curved horizon. Um, yeah, that that conspiracy theory survives. So this is the, this is part of the way that my work gets pissed on by archaeologists is that they lump me together with all kinds of theories that I don't buy into. I don't buy into the flat earth theory. I don't need aliens in order to explain the mysteries of our past. Yeah. The simplest, clearest explanation what about is the that there's been a forgotten episode in human history. And and we have lost part of our story. So we're we'll to turn them on to the Sumerian culture. And, and um, that's, what, that's the, the, the argument that I've been trying to put forward uh, to because explain things that, that are there were aliens, actually. We're looking at um, I trust them more uh, than the, 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 the dubious authors here. of the Bible. Uh, one, one bit of them. That's an interesting map, the Piri Reef map. Uh, and, and we have an episode in Ancient Apocalypse that touches on the mysteries of the Piri Reef map. In this, in this uh, frame, it's actually d- depicted on its side, but if you were to turn it vertically, uh, you will see that it's showing a bit of North America and South America, and it goes on down to Antarctica. Now, we went to the island of Bimini in the Grand Bahama Bank, uh, right off Florida, uh, about 50 miles east of Miami, uh, and we... we dived at Bimini because there is this structure underwater at Bimini that's known as the Bimini Road. Mm-hmm. And it's a classic megalithic structure. It's blocks of stone, 10 to 20 tons oh, each, which are laid out in a very regular pattern on the seabed, and which were covered by rising sea levels at the end of the ice age. Um, if we take the map on its side that's occupying the main frame there, and you'll see at the left-hand side of that map, there's an island. Uh, if you could bring the cursor down onto it, just keep going down. Keep going down. That big island there, <laughs> that big island uh, occupies the place where the Grand Bahama banks are. Uh, and that big island does not exist, didn't exist in 1513 when Perry reached through the map. Didn't, it doesn't exist today, but did exist during the Ice Age. And um, he shows it remarkably accurate, the right size. And what is pictured in the middle of it looks very much like an image of the Bimini Road, yeah. which is now which is now underwater. So we went to Bimini, we investigated the Bimini Road, I think that's in probably episode three of the series, uh, or maybe episode four, 
and and uh, then we looked at the implications for ancient maps because Piri Reese is a Turkish admiral. He did not um, just draw that map out of nowhere. He drew that map in 1513. Using many other source maps. But it was because of his own handwriting on the map that it was based on more than 20 older source maps. And he suggests that those older maps were associated in some way with Alexander the Great. Uh, the implication is that they may have come out of the lost libraries of Alexandria, which was a treasure house of ancient mm. wisdom until it was destroyed. Um, and and uh, it, it is well, alive. There's the Billy Ray. I've got a lot of diving, but that's a very unchallenging dive because it's only about 20 feet deep. Mm-hmm. And it's lovely warm water. Uh, and it's uh, and, and at the bottom of it, you have this anomaly, which again, archaeologists, because they don't like the idea that our ancestors were creating something like this during the Ice Age, they say, oh, it's entirely natural. That's not the Bimini Road that we're looking at there, whatever that is. But the Bimini Road is these huge pillow shaped megalithic slabs. Yeah. Uh, so that's the Bimini Road. And, and um, uh, archaeologists want it to be natural and say that it's just naturally formed beach rock. But I've seen beach rock all over the world, yeah. above and underwater, and none of it looks like this. And I took along as a diving buddy, uh, Michael Haley, who's a marine biologist who's done even more diving than I have around the world. And he also agreed that he's never seen anything like this. And furthermore, we found that these blocks are are propped up on little stones in some cases. So they were using the stones to level the feature out where there was a slope underneath. So I'm I'm confident it's man-made, but whether or not it's man-made, the fact that it appears on that map, drawn in 1513, based on maps, that right. came from the Library of Alexandria yeah. uh, raises huge other huge other questions. And the Pinkerton map, um, it's worth making a point about that, the Pinkerton world map, uh, because um, let's find the bit that shows the southern hemisphere and shows us, keep going down. We want to see the view from the southern hemisphere. There it is. There it is. This is the, um, the, 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 the Pinkerton world map. Um, and I believe it was drawn in around 1813. Uh, and in this case, it did not rely on ancient source maps. It was because by that, by 1813, there was a lot of navigation, and and and, and uh, we had explored most of the world. So this map was based on the latest navigational and exploration knowledge in 2013. But obviously, if you look at it, something big is missing from the picture, <laughs> and that big something that's missing from the picture is Antarctica. It's not there, and the reason it's not there is because this was an honest map. It was based on what they knew in 1813. So the weird point is that Antarctica then does appear, it does appear on much older maps. Uh, If you search Orontius Phineas world map, for example, O-R-O-N-T-A-E-U-S and Phineas, F-I-N-N-A-E-U-S, Orontius Phineas world map. That'll, that'll probably find it. That'll probably, that'll probably find it. Um, and and uh, go to the second row, shift over to the right, third from the third from the right. There, uh, is at the tip of South America and at the tip of South Africa is Antarctica. Yeah. And that's on a map drawn in 1534 by Arantius Phineas, 300 years before the Pinkerton map didn't know that Antarctica was there. And how does he know it's there? Because it's based on older source maps now lost. Even the Piri Reese map is only a fragment. The rest of that map is lost as well. We only got a little bit of the Piri Reese map. The maps get lost all the time, but what the Arabian Phineas map is preserving is knowledge of the world during the Ice Age. Somebody is exploring the Earth and mapping the Earth 
during the ice age. That's a oh, bigger Antarctica than it is today. It's much closer to South America than the ice because that's how it was during the ice age. It was a bigger, a much bigger continent than it is today. I do think necessarily that the middle of it is explored of the middle of that article, like, you know, there's actually really, really, really absolutely minimum exploration of Antarctica. There is some, there is some what they call core drilling. Yeah. Where, where drills are put down and bring up, and bring up ice cores. And a lot of the ice cores do date back millions of years. But they haven't explored, they haven't ice cored the whole of the Antarctica. And, and there's so much there that the possibility of something else being found needs to be, needs to be taken into account. Um, there, there was a theory, uh, which I explored in my, in my first book that looked into the lost civilization mystery, a theory um, called Earth Crust Displacement. And in Fingerprints of the Gods, published in 1995, I investigated that theory. And what that theory suggests is that the crust of the Earth can sometimes move around the inner air layers of the earth uh rather like a comparison would be an orange with a, with a loose skin mm. so the, the fruit of the orange stays in one place but the skin moves around it that would the, and the argument was that antarctica was once in a warmer zone uh, and, and it would shift its south into the antarctic zone and became the frozen continent we see today um there are there are many issues that that have been dismissed by archaeology that need consideration the one thing that i'm left with after 30 years investigating this subject actually more than 30 years um is that we had a giant global capitalism 12,800 years ago and it wasn't just a moment it lasted for 1,200 years until 11,600 years ago whatever arguments there are about the cause of this capitalism some people say it was the sun i go with i go with about a hundred major scientists who believe that the earth ran into the debris stream of a fragmenting comet uh comets uh, come in from deep space and they can be trapped by the sun into an orbit around the sun that crosses the orbit of the earth the comets are loosely bound together, huge chunks of rock and ice, and they break up into multiple pieces. And, and the suggestion was that, that uh, 12,800 years ago, a disintegrating comet leaving a huge debris, debris trail, that the Earth passed through it, and we were bombarded by, by probably a thousand fragments of this comet, some of them pretty large, a kilometer in diameter, landing on the North American ice cap in particular, some of them smaller, Small enough to burst in the air. Uh, one of those took place very, very near to Gobekli Tepe, at a site in Syria called Abu Herrera. Uh, there was an airburst over Abu Herrera 12,800 years ago. And in every case, what do they leave on the ground? They leave platinum, iridium, quartz, which has been melted at temperatures of more than 2,000 degrees centigrade, carbon microspherules, nanodiamonds, all of these things are the signatures of a comet impact. And it's, and it's the torrid meteor screen, uh, which you're showing on your screen now, which is the, which is the culprit. Uh, we, still, we, we, we are still in interaction with the torrid meteor screen. It's an ancient stream. The astronomers are convinced that the torrid meteor stream is the breakdown debris of a giant comet. A comet maybe a hundred miles in diameter that broke up into thousands of fragments and in doing so it spread out into a huge 
stream of debris. And the cold meteor stream, the Earth, we can see in this diagram, the Earth passes through it twice a year. It passes through it in June, and it passes through it in November. We just finished the passage of the cold meteor stream. And, and it's the same meteor stream that caused all the damage on the Earth 12,800 years ago. Uh, and, and the most recent definite damage from the torrid meteor stream was in 1908, the Tunguska event in Siberia, uh, where, where, where an object probably about 100 meters in diameter blew up in the sky and then flattened thousands of square miles of forests. Um, and that happened on the 30th of June, 1908, at the, at the heart of the forest. Like a missile explosion, absolutely. And then, in the case of the Younger Dryas, going back 12,000, there's the wrecked the forest of Siberia, where the, where, and that's the meteorite crater in, in Arizona, which is an earlier, an earlier event. Um, but the torrid meteor stream is a real and present crater in Arizona. Um, and and uh, the suggestion of the Vector Tepe, see, the mystery of the Vector Tepe is not only did they create it, Right at the end of this cataclysmic episode, the episode began 12,800 years ago with a cataclysm, with a sudden rise in sea levels. There was 1,200 years of absolute hell on Earth. Then there was another change of temperature. Global temperature shot up very rapidly. The last ice sheets collapsed into the sea uh, and uh, that's the end of this episode that's the beginning of our modern age effectively and at exactly that moment go back to Tuffy starts to be told by people who were only hunter-gatherers they weren't uh, settled agricultural community but, but they but they created this incredible structure the largest monumental structure on earth and in the process of creating it they became agriculturalists but the structure came first, the agriculture came second, and again, this is a, an unpopular view with archaeologists. But I think what we're looking at in the Bethlehem is what I call a transfer of technology. The people who already knew agriculture and who already knew how to create megalithic structures yeah. came to the Beckley Tuppy. They used the construction of the Beckley Tuppy to mobilize the local population, and in the process, they taught them agriculture. And then they buried it like a time capsule, because that same pillar 43 that we looked at earlier <laughs> spells out two dates. It spells out the date of 12,800 years ago when the cataclysm began, and it spells out our date today uh, at the different solstices, at the winter and summer solstices. So the suggestion is, and I pursue this in episode 8 of Ancient Apocalypse, that what they were what they were doing. Why Why did they go to all that trouble to bury Gobekli Tepe? Yeah. Burying it was more work than making it. <laughs> yeah. They put a massive great hill on top of it. Why did they Why did they do that? And, that? and the suggestion is it's a time capsule and that they intended to pass down a message for the future. And they used astronomy to provide dates for that. And they said this, a very bad thing happened in the time that we call 12,800 years ago and a very bad thing is going to happen in your time. I think we do something else. Yeah. 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 A most extraordinary Hi, and inexplicable structure. But you can say, bear in mind that it, it, it was the work started 10,000 years ago. It has run for about a thousand years. 
in favour of government. I don't want big government. I don't want a world government telling us what to do. I want no government. I'm an anarchist. Anarchist means without government. And, 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 that's, and that's all it means. I, I think governments are the source of so many of the problems that we have in the world today. The incredibly bad leadership that, that, we, that we see around the world. Very few, very few leaders uh, I would even want to pass the time of day with. And they are, they are driving us into madness. And it's in their interest to divide human beings from one another. So I would like to see a world where we recognize the beautiful variety of cultural difference, mm -hmm. but we don't claim that our culture is superior then, to another culture or that that culture is inferior to our... We don't, we don't make those claims. We recognize the beauty of the diversity uh, and we give our loyalty to the human family not to a particular artificial construct called a nation. Um, and and I, I just don't understand why that makes people so angry, but, but apparently it does. 
mountain cold refreshment made to chill. So, you don't think there'll be some chaos without a government, though? I'm curious. I think governments are the cause of the chaos. Okay. I think I think human beings I agree. Left, yeah left to their own devices human beings are not chaotic mm -hmm. uh, hunter-gatherer societies are not chaotic they don't yeah. have governments but they're mutually supportive nurturing yeah. loving positive they work together on common objectives yeah. and and they're 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 very positive human cultures yeah. um, I think governments are actually the cause of the problem but then they use the propaganda they use our money against us to create propaganda to teach us, to persuade us, to convince us to that we can't possibly live without them, that we need these parasites, you know, sitting at the top yeah. in government, governing us and being presidents and being prime ministers and being ministers and of this or that, telling us what yeah. to do. And dividing us. And dividing us. Yeah. It's, in their in, it's in their interests to persuade us that we need them. Uh, but I don't think we do need them, and I don't think I don't think the governments are a source of stability in the world. I think they're a source of instability in the world. Look what's look what's happening in in Ukraine right now, and 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 the whole the whole situation that's that's going on there. This is a situation that's being manipulated by all kinds of governments to create more chaos and more misery, which then persuades us that we need more government. No, we need less government, little government as possible, minimal government. Um, and and I'll take this opportunity to. My particular rant, which I, which I rant about at every opportunity, is let's make it a law that nobody can run for high office until they have had at least a dozen very powerful psychedelic journeys. Ooh. Can be the mushrooms. Can be the mushrooms. They're wonderful. They're wonderful teachers. Can be ayahuasca. I don't mind what their psychedelic of choice is, but they, they need to go do a dozen journeys and they will be confronted with their own baggage because that's part of the, 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 the psychedelic experience that we, that we are forced to face our dark side. We're forced to face our baggage and we're given the choice. Yeah. Carry on being a piece of shit or actually change your life. <laughs> and I think that many of, those, many of those people who are running for world leadership positions, <laughs> they would back out. If they'd, if they'd had a dozen ayahuasca or a dozen you know, heroic journeys with mushrooms, they wouldn't want to be politicians anymore. They'd yeah. want to do something more useful in the, in the world. And if by chance they stayed on as politicians, then they would be more educated, gentler, nurturing, kinder people Empathetic. than they are today. Yeah. 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 I agree. So what are we looking at there? DMT and human volunteers in London seeing the same entities. This is, this is such an interesting thing. Um, psychedelics are enjoying a renaissance in our society. There's no doubt about it. They're enjoying a renaissance. They demonized substances 20 years ago, but now we know that they have hugely valuable therapeutic outcomes. And that's particularly true for people with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, for people with deep depression, um, for people who are fearing death, for people who are suffering from terminal cancer and, and are fearing death. Uh, none of the big pharma drugs are any good, but psychedelics, particularly mushrooms, uh, will will lift people out of those states. Will break PTSD. I'm, I'm pro mushroom. I'm pro mushroom too. The mushrooms oh, are the man. ancient teachers yeah. of mankind. They have been co-evolving with us for millions of years, and and they are our allies and our friends. And like good friends, they sometimes give us a thorough kicking, because sometimes we need a thorough kicking. That's what they. That's what they do, and, and 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 so it's weird that our society has demonized these substances for the last sixty or seventy years. But now, 
you know, you can't hold out against the evidence. Yeah. Now the evidence is that these substances are nurturing and helpful to people, particularly to people who are locked in a, in a narrow yeah. frame of mind. But this trial that's taking place at Imperial College in London is something different. They're not looking to see how can DMT be used to cure people from PTSD, although it may well do so. They're looking to see what actually is happening in the DMT experience. What is what is going on? How can I sell that? How can I make money from that? Well, that's not the first. That's not the first case at the, at Imperial College. Um, uh, ra rather, the first case is a it's a kind of exploration. Is there a real? Is there something real to the DMT journey? The entities that we encounter, the beings that we meet, the teachings mm. that they give us, the strange realm. I mean, Terence McKenna used to call them machine elves. You know, the, the strange realm in which they in which they operate. Is it just a fantasy of the brain? Or are we locking into some kind of parallel universe, mm. uh, which we normally can't both see? Ways. It feels both ways. Both ways, yeah. 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 The brain is involved, imagination is involved. We, we, we construe these experiences through the culture that we live in. But I've talked to a number of the volunteers on this trial that's taking place in London. Uh, and they are, what they're telling me is that a new technology is being used. Anybody listening will, uh, who's smoked DMT will know that DMT is a very short extremely intense journey it's, it's about yeah. 12 minutes yeah. um you are plunged whether you like it or not if you if you get the right dose if you underdose you might not go over the edge but if you get the right dose you're plunged into a parallel reality oh wow and 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 you're stuck there for the next 12 minutes and it's so overwhelming and there's so much going on a lot of people find it terrifying some people find it amusing uh -huh. some people find it curious but we don't really remember a lot of it. It's so you come out of the DMT state and you think, "What the fuck happened to me? I don't, I don't even remember what happened to me." So in in Imperial College, they're finding ways to keep people on DMT for an hour. Yeah, they're giving it as a as an intravenous drip, and it's going straight into the bloodstream, and and um, that gives them time to adjust to adapt to this strange landscape. And they're all coming back with the same kinds of descriptions of the same entities in the same environment. And I can't wait to see what the, what the outcome uh, of, that, of that will be. Um, I've smoked the MP multiple times myself. Um, I've had uh, some extraordinary experiences, some terrifying, some just intriguing. Every one of them was something that I don't regret. I'm glad that I had those experiences. I wish I could. I wish I could um, uh, volunteer for this trial that's taking place in London. But unfortunately, in 2017, um, I suffered from. Uh, I came very close to death with a massive epileptic seizure, which came out of nowhere. Um, I, I was I was just hit with a what they call a grand mal, grand mal chronic chronic seizure. I was thrashing around and shouting and roaring. Uh, my wife called the ambulance. We were upstairs. One ambulance crew wasn't enough. They had to bring another ambulance crew. They had to carry me downstairs uh, and out to the ambulance. I was still, I don't remember any of this. I was still roaring and shouting. Santa tells me that the ambulance was shaking with me, with me in it. They take me off to the hospital. Santa's in the ambulance. And at the hospital, they can't stop me seizing. I'm still, I'm still in the state of seizure. So the doctors say to Santa, um, we, you may lose him. And, and uh, at the very least, he's going to suffer brain damage unless we put him into a coma right now.
and they they put me into a, an induced coma, uh, which I was in for 48 hours. And the next thing I remember is the ventilator tube being hauled out of my mouth, and I'm saying, "Get this fucking thing out of me!" I, and I I didn't remember anything else. I was they're just total blank. For all, of, for all of that period, but because of that, uh -huh. because I have epilepsy, because when you get it at my age, I'm 72 now, when, oh, wow. you, get, when you get epilepsy in childhood, you often grow out of it. Uh -huh. But when you get it as an adult, it's with you for life. And so at Imperial, I've tried to volunteer. At Imperial College, they said, we can't accept you because what happens if you die of epilepsy in the MRI scanner? Then our whole project will be closed down. Um, but my wife, Santa, may well volunteer for that. She doesn't have, she doesn't have epilepsy. And meanwhile, I'll go on smoking DMT from time to time to explore, to explore that realm. So how does it feel? How does it feel? Like, so you explained it, but like, so you said you have good, you have good uh, trips, bad trips. Listen, every time, every time I smoke DMT, I have to brace myself. I, I mean, like sit down, like comfy couch. It's like, it's like, this is going to be rough, um, and I'm scared of it. But I really, I'm really curious about it, so I'm going to smoke this thing anyway. And the first two puffs don't quite take you there, and the third one, and then you do the fourth, and then you're gone. Blackout? No, you're having experiences that are not of this world. Like seeing, like is it like seeing things? Yes, seeing things, seeing things. encountering entities who, who who speak to you, um, who give you instructions, who, who who beam telepathic messages into your brain. I know all of this sounds nuts. No, and no, most no. and most scientists. Dealing with the, with parallel part of the brain. Well, the funny, the funny thing about DMT is it's naturally produced in the human body. We all make DMT. DMT is everywhere in nature, and and it's a natural product of the human body, usually in subpsychedelic quantities. But there's evidence that very close to death, the DMT rate rises, or maybe something that helps us to transition. Um, there's evidence in the dreaming. Too long. Yeah. Mushrooms, on the other hand, uh, they're mild. Are, they're mild. Well, it depends how much. DMT, because it's very closely related to the DMT molecule. Um, I agree. Ancient teachers of mankind, we uh, have benefited enormously uh, from these gifts that nature has provided us with. And mushrooms are one of those gifts, and uh, so frankly is cannabis. Cannabis is another of those gifts. Thank God our society is finally waking up to how absurd and ludicrous it is for cannabis to be illegal. What a stupid thing. In the same society that, that uh, glorifies alcohol, in the same society that glorifies, well, no longer glorifies, but certainly allows tobacco, 
we we are going to we are going to put still there are countries that put people in prison for cannabis. Yeah. It's completely ridiculous. Alcohol is a a very boring drug and and be a very dangerous it is it's so bad it's a very dangerous drug so bad for the health it's so bad it puts people into a violent frame of mind they get into fights they drive badly i'll tell you if 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 i had to choose between being driven by a stoned driver and a a drunk driver i would choose the stone driver every time yeah every time do you think that uh, alcohol is actually what I feel? I'll feel the Arabic word. Yeah, yeah Arabic yeah. word which means, um, which is like a, which means like a demon or something like that. Demon or something like that. It's crazy what we're drinking. We're putting our bodies there. Like, the demonic. And, and, and the thing to realize is that, that when, when people drink alcohol, I, I drink alcohol now extremely rarely because it causes it causes migraine for me. But I will occasionally, very occasionally, have a glass of wine. Now, a glass of wine can taste nice, but nobody is drinking alcohol for the taste. Fundamentally, they're drinking alcohol for the change in consciousness that it produces. It produces a little bit of relief from the ground. And it's that it's not like that whiskey or that double whiskey or that vodka or that glass of wine and you just feel a little bit a little bit better a little bit and that's and so what our society is doing with alcohol there's a legalized altered state of consciousness yeah. uh, and yet other altered states of consciousness cannabis in many countries fortunately not in california i'm pleased i'm pleased that the american people are taking their power back state by state uh, and it's a, it's a it's a good thing to see, and I hope it will be an example to other countries in the world. But I'm, a, I'm allergic to alcohol. Yeah, it's a whole. Every time I drink it, I break out of the handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully put. Uh, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Mike, it's amazing. Yeah, Mr. Graham. Yeah, you break out. Yeah. <laughs> no. So so uh, we live in a hypocritical society. That's okay. Uh, which doesn't uh, which doesn't embrace the lessons of our ancestors. Our ancestors were always using psychedelics. Uh, they are fundamental to all religions. They are fundamental to all great ideas. Uh, and this has just been written out of history. It's another one of those things that historians don't want us to know. The whole world's a big lie. Unfortunately, there are a lot of big lies. Yeah, there are. There are. And the trick is to find the truth uh, in amongst them. Human population just hit 8 billion. What's next? I'm looking at the screen here. Well, a lot of, a lot of diseases. <laughs> I, I, the screen's looking me straight in the face. I can't, I can't help it. I have, to, I have to read it out. Human population just hit 8 billion. What's next? 9 billion? <laughs> I'm not sure what's next. I think when, when you look at the, when you look at the, the so-called population problem, it's not really a population problem. It's a distribution problem. Mm. Um, you know, we blame it all on the poor mm-hmm. and say, oh, the poor, they have so many children. Yeah. They're, they're um, increasing the human population. But their consumption of the world's resources is minimal mm-hmm. by yeah. comparison with one wealthy family right. in, the, in the industrialized West. Mm-hmm. We, we have, have small families now. Why, why do why the poor have large families? Because having a large family is an asset, because your children will look after you in old age. Um, the moment that you solve the economic needs of people, they stop having they stop having so many so many kids. So so the problem is the problem is not population as such. The problem is distribution. This world can support 
um, a much larger population than eight billion, but we have to share it a bit more kindly. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, shouldn't all be locked up within, you, you know, within a few countries that are incredibly mega wealthy mm-hmm. and, and other countries that are that, that, that are that are starving. Um, it's it's not just a problem. Look after the people, and the population will look after itself. I agree. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on religion and God since you've been studying? Sure. Um, I grew up in a in a religious family. Uh, my grandfather was a minister of the church. I recently discovered he climbed the Great Pyramid in 1916. Oh wow! He was a chaplain with British forces in Egypt during the First World War. Um, he was a minister of the church. Um, and he was a sort of fire and brimstone preacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my father was brought up in that Christian tradition, but he became a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then rather than take a plush teaching job in a, in a big teaching hospital in the UK, uh, he went out to India with me and, and my mom uh, in 1954. Um, and he was, um, he was a surgeon in a place called the Christian Medical College in Valor in South India. Uh, so I spent four years of my childhood in South India amongst a Christian community and constantly receiving Christian propaganda. Um, I don't think at that age that I began to rebel about against it, but I know that by the time I became a teenager, I was very anti-Christian. I rebelled, and we all rebel against our parents, and I, I rebelled against mom, and I didn't want to be a Christian, and I didn't want to kneel down in church, and I didn't like that entity that they called God, um, and I regarded myself as an atheist. Um, that's another one of those words which needs to be carefully defined. Mm-hmm. Just as anarchist needs to be carefully defined. Anarchist means without government. Atheist means without God. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't mean without a belief in the supernatural. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to believe that we're just accidents of chemistry and biology. You can believe, as I do, in life Spiritual. after death without being a Christian mm-hmm. or without being a, 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 a Muslim or without being a Jew. You don't, these are the three big monotheistic faiths that, that dominate the world today. And then, of course, there are millions of other faiths as well, which all have different ideas. Um, and, I mean, I think that the very fact that there are so many different ways of looking at this problem tells us that not any one of those ways is right. They, they, they can't all be right, since they all say so, 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 such different things. So I think that next to government, uh, the three big monotheistic faiths uh, have been responsible for a great deal of misery and chaos mm-hmm. in this world. The Christian church uh, in its early days and right through until the 18th century was a vicious, murderous institution. I mean, can you imagine burning a fellow human being or being stoned or, being, or, or in Islam being stoned to death? A woman wears her hair too long or is unfaithful to her husband and, and she gets real, stoned to death. You're pissed at death. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's, so, it's so cruel and, and so anti-human in, in every way that we would actually stone a fellow human being to death, that we'd burn a fellow human being at the stake in, in the name of God. of God. What kind of God is that? That's a demon that we're worshipping there, in my view, not, not a God. And I know this is going to get me into trouble with lots of religious fanatics, but, but the harm that the big religions have done in the world today far outweighs the good that they've done. And I think that's another area where we need to move forward as a human species. And it's an area where psychedelics are very helpful because they give us a direct experience of, let's call it the divine. They give us a direct experience of the divine. Nobody's teaching us. We're having that experience ourselves. And and, uh, the more people work with psychedelics in a serious, 
respectful way, mm -hmm. uh, the more deep thought is going to is going to go into these mysteries. Because it will probably grow closer to the divine. Yes. You don't call God, but well, yeah, but to the divine. Let's call it the divine or the universe, uh -huh. whatever we want to call it. But let's not call it God. Uh, because God carries baggage. God carries, particularly in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, God carries the notion of this stern, bearded figure ah. sitting in the clouds, judging us. Um, he's just like a, a president, but with divine powers. You know, he's a, he's a tribal chief uh, with, with supernatural powers. We don't have to buy into that to accept that there's something incredibly mysterious in the universe, but it's an incredible mystery to be alive, to have this opportunity of a human life, to have this opportunity to learn and to grow and to develop. Of course, we can't prove this. We're not just accidents of chemistry and biology. There is some kind of project unfolding here on Earth, and it's a project about the manifestation, the growth of, and the realization of consciousness, in my, in my view. Uh, without consciousness, we're nothing. We're just meat machines. Yeah. Consciousness is consciousness is what the human experience is all about, and that's why I so much detest laws uh, that seek to patrol our consciousness mm -hmm. and to tell us what we may or may not do with our own bodies. Mm -hmm. You know that you can't take that particular psychedelic, yeah. uh, and if you do, we're going to send you to prison and ruin your life. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in Britain, uh, if you're caught smoking cannabis, you're going to be sent to very likely to be sent to prison, particularly if you're in possession of a quantity of it. The police troops in Britain actually are advocating now that cannabis should be upgraded from a class B drug to a class A drug, which is, which is the highest schedule. Wow. You know, and, 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 and yet those same police chiefs are drinking alcohol uh, every night in the yeah. pub. Yeah. Uh, what, what hypocrisy is that? As long as we do no harm to others. There should be no government, no institution, no authority figure telling us what to do with our own bodies and our own consciousness and our own health. Women's rights too. And women's rights too, women's rights yes, too. of course. Very much so. This is, this is, these, are, these are universal human rights, which, which should not be patrolled and monitored by government, government figures. We should not be told what sure. to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I believe God is love, though. Like, I don't know, I'm at a point in my life where... where you're right. So growing up, I grew up the same way, Christian, faith, you know, and I always looked at it as if, um, praise the Lord. I always looked at it as, as if, like, you know, you always getting judged, right? And I got to a point, certain point in my life where I was like, you know what, like, I had to kind of, like, go back and relearn my faith. Yeah. And, like, read more yeah. and learn more. I kind of just look at God as... Huh? More so the loving thing. Oh, come on in, baby. Yeah. And maybe more so the divine of what you're talking about. Maybe that space yeah. when you Aww. get to Well as long as as long as we can extract that idea of God from the place that the three states manifesting faith okay. have put it. Uh -huh. As long as we can extract that yeah. entity from that, I'm okay with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because because really what else is there in the universe apart from consciousness and love yes. that really matters? What do we what do we value at the end of our lives on this earth? More than the love we've given and the love we've received. Yeah. These are these are the, and, and love has no price. No matter no matter how wealthy a person you are, it's something you can't buy, uh, and it's something you can't you can't buy it to receive it, and you can't buy it to give it. Uh, that's 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 the beautiful thing. That's that's the lasting thing, and that's why this world so full of hatred so full of fear, deliberately manipulated fear, so full of suspicion of one another, is not a good place for, for, for human beings to, to be right now. I'm looking at that screen again. <laughs> it's just beaming to me. It's saying, it's saying thought on simulation 
Wow. Um, so I don't, I don't expect them to believe. I expect them to disbelieve, and I yeah. expect them to try to make me look as bad as possible, mm -hmm. and to and, and to try to get people not to pay attention to my work. But my view is, if I just keep going, and I'm not alone, mm -hmm. there are other people working in this field, great people who are working in this field. If, if, if we just keep going and keep putting out the contrary knowledge, mm -hmm. the contrary information, that gradually more and more people will take interest in it. And the history of science teaches that this is how knowledge changes. Um, it, it's very difficult to shift an established system of knowledge. Very, it's very difficult to just to wipe it away yeah. and replace it with something new. It takes a gradual accumulation of evidence mm -hmm. that cannot be explained by the established theory. Mm -hmm. And that evidence has to keep on being put forward against all opposition, uh, despite all the attacks. You just have to keep on putting it forward. And, and eventually, little by little, it will become clear to the those who hold power in the established theory that the theory is laughable mm -hmm. uh, and, that it, and that it has to be replaced. So, so rather than, of course I don't like it when people call me a pseudoscientist or mm -hmm. a pseudo-archaeologist. It really pisses me off. Mm -hmm. I, I want to try and explain this, yes, yes. Um, which, is, which is a phrase, it's a phrase I often use. Okay? But I'm gonna, the reason I'm going to explain it is because it came up in a comment on something I posted on Facebook. I, somebody was puzzled by this phrase. Tell me if it's puzzling. I say, I say, I am no more a pseudo-scientist than a dolphin is a pseudo-fish. <laughs> okay, now, what I mean by that is that dolphins look like fish. But they're not. But they're not fish. They swim in the same waters as fish. They may even have some of the same interests as fish. But they're not fish. They're mammals. They're a totally different kind of creature. Um, and, and what I'm saying is, I am, I am not any kind of archaeologist, let alone a pseudo-archaeologist. I'm something else completely. I'm just basically a reporter. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist. And that's, and, and that's all I am. But then somebody somebody commented that Joe Rogan tells me that I should never read comments. <laughs> Why? Because, because both, the positive ones crazy. The, both the positive ones and the negative ones are bad for you. Yeah, they're big deal. The positive ones inflate your ego and the negative ones make you depressed. You should be open to that as well. Anyway, I still do look at comments from time to time. And, and, and so some of the comments of what does Hancock mean? Um, I'm no more a pseudo-archaeologist than a dolphin is a pseudo-fish. Is he talking about the dolphin fish? Um, it was completely misunderstood. It just went, psh, right over the Yeah, and, 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 and was I, by saying that, really undermining my own theories? There's some things I just don't understand on social media. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm old school. I have not yet uh, got to use a cell phone. My thumbs and fingers just won't work with that little keyboard. Plus, there's so much shit to learn yeah. to make it work. There's all kinds of stuff you have to know. So I just I just don't want to I just don't want to use it. I want to I want to stay um, as old school as possible. I can't actually remember how I got to this point, mm -hmm. but that's because of your dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if it makes if it makes you feel better, if it makes you feel better. I'm a professional athlete, and I don't. It's a different time. But Mike, you obviously didn't have to deal with that, like uh, social media comments, people no. talk. So I'm an athlete, so now I deal with it a lot. People always like, you know, comment on my face. Hear about it in the paper. Yeah, yeah, you heard about it in the paper. Totally. But you get people saying shit about you today. Huh? You people are still saying shit about you today. I'm still saying shit about them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they even playing the field. 
But in your in your boxing career, social media was not was not a thing. No, it came it came afterwards. Yeah. What's your feeling about that? Would it have been better if there was social media? No, there? I don't know. It would have been the same thing. People would have been mad. People would have been shooting people. Yeah. yeah back then it was just very violent. Life was over shit in the eighties. Mm. It was a different world. But do you think it's worth shit today? Are things better? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to hear that. Absolutely. Yeah. In the 80s, everybody was dying. Everybody died of drugs, mm-hmm. diseases, guns, knives. It was just murder up in the 80s. Santa has taught me over the last 30 plus years uh, that what really matters is love. Love is what uh, matters. And, and, and love is not, is not just a rosy tinted idea. Um, I've seen I've seen this with Santa. Um, Santa and I um, have six children. Santa has been married. It goes bigger. We've got eight grandchildren. Santa has been married once before, and she brought two children from that marriage. And I was married twice before. I brought two children from my first marriage and two children from my second marriage. So what we have here are six children from three broken homes. The Brady Bunch. Santa and I never made a child together, but Santa became an incredible mother to all of these six kids, some of whom, as you can imagine, initially were very resistant to her because they had a feeling of mistrust, but she just kept on giving love. And love is not rosy pictures. Love is effort. It's hard work. It's again and again being there for that person and giving and giving that giving that support. And I don't think I'd ever had a sense of of what love really meant in my life until I met the amazing woman who I'm privileged to spend my days with. Um, and I know that that's what matters, and it's the one thing that all human beings share, and that we can and that we can all give out. It doesn't have to be this hatred and fear and suspicion. Of course, we have our darker nature. Uh, of course, it keeps on coming up all the time, but but. It does with me. I'm I'm full of error and constantly making mistakes. I have a, I may have mentioned this last time we talk. I have a I have a real problem with anger. I get which I which I don't like myself for. I get I can I can get suddenly very angry and I I can say cruel and hurtful things that I actually don't mean. And and I've been try I've been trying to learn not to be that person and not and not to do that. But I still haven't put that person completely completely in the box. I've, I've, I've learned from my wife that love is what matters and that love is work and that love is giving uh, and that we're all capable of, of giving it to one another. And every ancient civilization knew that as well. <laughs> yeah. There you have it, folks. That's Mike Tyson. I'm Sebastian Joseph Day. And this is Graham Hancock. Thank you so much. Thank for you so much. This is amazing. This is amazing. This is amazing. Thank you. This is Hot Boxing. We out of here. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. Right, so welcome back to the Trace Staff for Governor. My name is Jimmy Thomason. I'm the executive director. I'm Jimmy. I'm Trace Staff. And we are hot on the trail of Trump going to jail. Full documentary America's Surveillance State. Film is now movies and trailers. Nightmare Night in Russia. Ukraine hits key Russian city with grads. Missiles. Oh. It's the first time Russia had suffered such a severe damage. Putin's key city turned to hell. 
U.S. Eagle Claw. What the fuck? Sad. One for the Skinwalker. Full movie. One for movies. Ooh, Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers. Okay. Let's check it out, because I saw this advertised on Gaia, right? Comments. Everything Bob has said over the years has been slowly coming out as facts. The man is 100% truthful. Why would anyone ruin their reputation? I often wonder about the nature of reality, about our relationship to the creative force that forged the particles of our stars and intertwined them, the molecules of our bodies. Who are we? And where are we actually sitting within the architecture of our universe? Are we alone? Or is the answer simply stranger than we can think? My name is Jeremy Corbell. I seek to weaponize your curiosity. And if you're ready to suspend your own prejudice, welcome to the world of extraordinary beliefs. This week we've heard the contention of UFO researchers that there is a secret government within our government. Well, there are several, uh, actually nine, uh, flying saucers, flying discs, uh, that are out there of extraterrestrial origin. Not to burst your bubble, but the Earth is not the center of the universe. At least not anymore. You are not the star of your own movie. Humans are not the top of the food chain. And fate is a fantasy. But I can't prove any of this, even if I even wanted to. I wanted to.
money simply isn't what it used to be. Things are not what they see. Everything around us is a mental construct. We create air. Soft mineral melt in your mouth to rebuild your gums and teeth and never need a dentist again. People are fixing their receding gums, decaying teeth, gingivitis, and tooth infections all by letting this special mineral melt in their mouth every morning. Maverick Dr. Drew Sutton has just discovered this powerful sweet mineral that can regrow your teeth and gums almost overnight. How is this possible? This mineral contains special microscopic healing ingredients that reach deep inside the gum pockets and in between all your teeth, something not possible until now. This method is 10 times more effective than any existing solution which means you may never have to step foot into a dentist office ever again, as this can easily be done from home at your kitchen table. The crazy part is it only takes a few seconds to do and immediately starts restoring years worth of damaged receding gums and decaying teeth in just a matter of days. So if you are still struggling with bleeding or receding gums, gingivitis, gum infections, toothaches or decay, bad breath, or any type of periodontal issue, then this discovery could save your life. I urge you to stop everything you're doing and click the link below to watch a short, free special video that'll show you exactly how you can start using this method today. If it's already worked for 34,232 people, then it can surely work for you too. Even if you've been fighting decay and inflammation for 5, 10, or even 20 years, imagine, no more awful metallic blood taste in your mouth, no more throbbing tooth pain, and best of all, never having to step foot into a dental office ever again. The billion dollar dental industry does not want you to see this video and discover the fastest, most powerful gum and teeth rejuvenating secret on the planet. Click the link below and watch it before it's too late. Click it now as it will disappear in just a few seconds. Try this 90-second trick to instantly reduce your winter energy bills by 85%. This jet engineer just discovered how to heat homes for almost zero cost, sending shockwaves through energy company boardrooms. He built a device that rapidly warms homes for barely a dime. And at this rate, everyone in America will have one of these by 2025. Here's why. The story began 18 months ago. Tucker Johnson, a 42-year-old jet engineer, was born in Minneapolis, where temperatures can plummet to 20 below freezing in winter. Raised by his grandparents, he saw the hardship seniors face during cold months, struggling to pay the high cost for the heating their lives depend on. And after seeing soaring energy prices due to recent world events, he realized just how many people were going to be in serious trouble this winter. So Tucker vowed to do something about it. With 20 years experience working on jet engine technology, he'd long had an ambitious theory he'd always wanted to test. And after seeing energy prices skyrocket to all-time highs, he couldn't wait any longer to put it to the test. Using the Bernoulli physics principle that powers all major jet engines, he built a one-of-a-kind device that creates a perpetual heat loop, recycling the heat that's generated so none of it goes to waste. The results were incredible. Under control testing, temperatures in freezing rooms soared from 35 to 75 degrees, while using 80% less energy than regular home heaters. But the only problem was, the heater was slow to act, taking much longer than central heating to warm up rooms. So he continued to work tirelessly on his theory. 
and 27 prototypes later, he finally struck gold with a device that rapidly heats rooms in under three minutes while slashing winter energy bills by a massive 85%. After word got out about what he'd made, investors quickly lined up. Tucker was given over $3 million to bring his device to market. And after months in development, the result... Mental construct. We Breaking that down is hard to do. And once it's done, there ain't no coming back. What happens to people when their fundamental beliefs, the bedrock of their understandings, explodes into a million pieces? When somebody comes careening from out of the blue, and it messes with everything we know. How do we react? How do we react?
Greetings to all of you from the boldest, bawdiest, most outrageous city in the world, planetary capital of sun, fun, sin, sex, and secrets, my not-so-humble hometown, Las Vegas, Nevada. You know, there are a lot of people, myself included, who would like to focus on big picture stuff. Who are these visitors? Why are they here? What is the nature of reality? What is their interest in us? Where do they come from? Now, those are the questions that people have been asking about the UFO mystery since the beginning. We're no closer to answering any of them, but Bob got pretty close. Bob got to read these briefing documents that provided those kind of answers. The thing is, when we were covering his story, so much of the effort was in proving that he really was the person he said he was. Is it true? Is it plausible? That really, that was the focus uh, more than the really important stuff. You have to cover the story of Bob Lazar. And the only way to do that is to talk to Bob. And I don't know if it'll talk to you or not, but you need to try. All going to be circumstance for you is the moment that you approach him, the mood that he's in, what else is going on in his life at the time. You might hit the jackpot and get him at exactly the right time and the, the universe is aligned and he's willing to talk about it. But you have to be awfully lucky. Uh, because in general, Bob doesn't like to talk about it. I think he's very happy in his life. He's happy to have left the UFO stuff behind. He misses his friends. He misses John Lear. He misses Gene Huff. Maybe even me, to some extent. Uh, but he doesn't miss the UFO company. And he doesn't miss talking about it. Because ultimately, it's disturbing. These are disturbing issues. They go to the heart of who we are as people. As human beings, the nature of reality itself. Is this a computer simulation? Are we all the product of an alien video game? <laughs> or some multi-dimensional movie, drive-in movie theater production or something? Big questions. Disturbing answers. And Bob has never been comfortable in talking about it. Never. My teeth were a mess. I had a lot of pain as far as my physical health. My body was telling me, you got to do something. So I came to Clear Choice. Your mouth is the gateway to your body. Joe's treatment. He reacted by going into a cocoon in a lot of ways. He didn't like, he doesn't like the attention and it totally screwed up his life. It's not surprising that even years later, he still is uncomfortable in discussing these things. It's a very disturbing view of reality. Looks like out here, two stoner, stoner. Area 51 secret U.S. Air Force military installation located, located at Groom Lake in southern Nevada. It is administered by Edwards Air Being Force Being a young person, guy to you. So now this looks old, man. Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California. The installation has been the focus of numerous conspiracies. Everything, these are comments. Just remember, but Lazar's description of how the UFOs fly with their belly facing front was precisely described by those Navy pilots years later. I was questioned these, but it's pretty hard to not believe Bob. He comes off as the most sincere man I've ever heard. My name's Bob Lazar. I'm known for working at a classified base known as S-4 out in the Nevada desert near Area 51. And there, we reverse engineered alien spacecraft. 
and it's changed my life a lot. You know, it's probably changed every aspect of it, positive or negative. Well, for the most part, negative. I mean, I it's really difficult to find positive aspects of that. I mean, I'm sure there are some here and there, but most of them were, were negative. Weird music. Would, would you, After more than 30 would you years, you take all that and just off the jet car guy and never have done this if you can? Or are you glad you had the experience? Um, yeah, that's hard to say. I don't know. I I think I'd lean towards not. At this point in my life, I'd probably lean towards not saying. You know, what would I've been be watching Bob Lazar since the beginning. About looking at your story and thinking about the world. What would you say to him? Just pay attention. Just pay attention. I can't see. I can't really say much else. The world's a lot different now. The way information is disseminated, the way, the way things are passed around, it's distorted even faster and more now than it used to be. So they've got a rough road ahead if we're trying to cut through. Music is terrible. What do you want them to know? That in the late 1980s, the U.S. government had recovered alien spacecraft, several of them, and the technology in the Nevada desert that they were keeping quiet and analyzing. That's a fact. They don't need my story, but that's, I mean, that's all my story was. And I was just one of the people working on these craft. Well, fine, I'll just say everything instead of holding back on anything, yeah. and then you can edit it later on. All right. Well, <laughs> take it from the top, then. Okay. Well, go ahead. <laughs> uh, how you got involved with this program? I had sent resumes to several national labs. I got a response from a couple of them. I went in for an interview. They had a job in mind, and then they continued questioning me mainly on my interests outside of work. They seem to be really concerned about that. About things like jet cars. Right. What do you do in your spare time? Uh, you know, you, you say you work on little projects. I said, yeah, I have a particle accelerator in my master bedroom and, <laughs> and things of that sort. And uh, some time went by and they called me back in. They said uh, there was a, a senior staff physicist that was leaving uh, this organization and they basically interviewed me for that job. I was given a lot of briefings to read on, I, I believe there were 121 different briefings and they just sat me in a room and they had a, uh, while they were going and updating my clearance to a level that they call majestic. You, you start reading these reports, you see some of them deal with flying saucers. What's your reaction? Well, I was, I was completely shocked. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, but uh, I was fascinated. I was so excited. I. It's it's a it's a science dream, really. Eventually, I was shown them uh, one close up, one operating. They had uh, one of the reactors out of the crafts, which was an antimatter reactor. Uh, I was given a demonstration on how it worked, uh, things that it did, and uh, the physics of it. The thing they were most interested in is is duplicating the, the reactors without using this element one fifteen. Uh, 
which is of course impossible. They were trying to, uh, and there have been projects before that, uh, just trying to use a, a normal nuclear generator fueled with plutonium, and uh, really a futile attempt. Some people are sources of gravity. Escapes only 10 minutes, a day sharpens your brain. How many words can you spell from these five letters? Wordscapes chat. Some people are gravity. Their certainty and wholeness commands our attention. We are drawn to them by a natural law that requires we don't we quite understand and mechanism. But the pull is like a tide, a current you can't deny, and eventually it wears you down. Call George Knapp. Calling George Knapp, mobile. <sighs> Hey, George. Hey, man. What's up, man? How you doing? All right. What's going on? This is now 30 years since you initially broke the story of Bob Lazar. So, I mean, the amount of information is overwhelming. I just want to go over with you some of the details of the case. Sure. We're talking about UFOs, alien craft, death engineering. And there's Lazar saying he did all that. What I understand, it's spread everywhere. Yeah, you know, we had the first interview in May of 1989. Not his real identity, not uh, not known, not revealed to the audience. And even that, before we know who Bob Lazar was, that uh, sparked a big, uh, a great deal of interest among the public. I spent uh, the eight months between May and November uh, trying to verify Bob's background to see if we could solidify the case, see if we could find out if he was telling the truth. And then to the plan was to unleash it in November, which is what we did. It was the highest rated news series we've ever done. It was the highest rated news special that ever aired in Las Vegas. And then it really exploded. It went all over the world. Bootleg copies of the tapes were being sold and shown in movie theaters. You had media interest from all over the world. And I, I think a lot of it was skeptical at the beginning, which of course it would be. But in the end, every major news organization in the world surpassed Area 51 doors. And tens of thousands of people started showing up out there to see whatever it was that was flying around in the desert. There's no country all these years later. And I know a lot of my media colleagues have had problems that story, but they've all covered all of them. You put Area 51 on the map. It's now known all over the world. Even though Lazar works at S4, Area 51 is the term that the public knows. So it was huge. It was huge then. It's huge now.
Muy bonita. Ay, oye, oye, no, no, no le han dado de alta. Dos, tres semanas. ¿Eh? Dos, tres semanas. William. Sí, sí, William. Uh, ya. Yeah. Dos, tres semanas uh, quiere llamar. each other all the time it's like it's like dealing with a with a pack of wolves survival of the boss so but the, the basically the 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 hierarchy of archaeology oh. encourages young archaeologists to buy into the mm. theories of older archaeologists mm. because if they don't If they challenge those theories, then they're not going to get recognition, they're not going to get research funding, they're not going to get grants, and fundamentally they're not going to be able to do the work. So there's there's moral pressures in the discipline to conform and mm. to fit and to fit with what the discipline says, um, and and uh, this inevitably re results in the in the criticism of my work. I'm very happy for my work to be criticized. Mm -hmm. Criticism is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I'm very happy for that. What I'm not happy about is the lazy, idle way in which they just casually dismiss me as a pseudoscientist or a pseudo-archaeologist and use woke labels to, 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 to try to diminish my impact further. I think they need to work harder right -wing, uh, if they're going to put this down. And that's why I celebrate the fact that Netflix took the risk of putting this series out there with my contrary views. Uh, which archaeologists despise, uh, reject, and detest. Huh. When you stay at a Verbo, the host doesn't stay with you. Because without privacy in your vacation... By any chance, there's a tribe of people off of what, New Zealand? What's that island again? They came from Africa. They've been there for, what, I think 60,000 years on that island? Yeah. It's a black tribe. Some guy, Some guy from... One of the, one of the uh, missionary guys, Jesus, praise the Lord, let me save you. And they do spears. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. They killed that. You know that, right? I do know. I do know What's that. What's that all about? Well, there, there are, um, I mean, for example, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt that human beings came first from Africa. This is a fact. Uh, Africa, Africa is the origin of the human story. Sudan. And it's clear that there were many migrations out of Africa. Uh, going back actually millions of years if we if we take into account Homo erectus. Uh, and some of those migrations uh, were 60 or 70,000 years ago. So the Australian uh, Aborigines are, are a people who've been on the Australian landmass for 60 or 70,000 years. And, and, and that's no easy task. They had to get all the way from Africa. They had to cross the sea and wow. they ended up and they ended up in Australia. Um, and you know what's and, so crazy? They ended up way in Australia when they could have crossed the sea and went to, par to the Paris. Well, yes, but they did that as well. <laughs> they, did, they, they, they did that as well. They went everywhere. It's just that Northern Europe during the Ice Age was a pretty unpleasant place to be. Half of it was covered with a, an ice cap that was at least a mile deep or maybe two miles deep. It was very cold. It was very unpleasant. And uh, it, didn't support, it didn't support large populations. So people naturally tended to stay in southern areas rather than northern areas. Think it's something under the North Pole? 
Um, under the North Pole, probably not much because because it's largely just sea ice. But under Antarctica, the South Pole. Now that's an interesting proposition. Yeah. And again, it's another area which has not been studied by archaeology mm. for two reasons. Firstly, because it's extremely expensive to go do archaeology in Antarctica, and secondly, because they're convinced they're not going to find anything there. That it's been ice covered for hundreds of millions of years. But Antarctica is is a mass. It's a continent-sized <laughs> landmass. It has solid ground <laughs> under it. The, the ice sits on top of islands, huge, huge islands. Uh, and I don't think that we can, I don't think that archaeologists have a right to claim that they've got the whole human story taped without taking Antarctica into account, without doing some work there. And the same goes for the Amazon rainforest, five million square kilometers covered by dense canopy, old growth rainforest, never really studied by archaeologists. And the tiny little bit of research that's being done now, the new imaging it. that's coming in from LIDAR work, which, which shows you what's under the They're canopy without destroying so it, it, suggests that there, there are enormous discoveries to be made in the Amazon. Then the other really important place is the Sahara Desert, Africa again. Nine million square kilometers of Sahara Desert, which was green during the Ice Age and is desert now just because it's desert now doesn't mean it was always desert and by and large there's very Ay. Caramba. just because it's desert now doesn't mean it was always desert and by and large there's very little archaeology done in the Sahara Desert so there's huge areas of our planet the last one is the continental shelves covered by the 400 foot rise in sea level at the end of the ice age you know what's sitting underwater that we haven't that we haven't found yet. Huge areas of our planet, the plain fact is, have never received the attention of archaeology. So it's premature for archaeologists to say they've got the whole story. Yeah. Supposedly I saw in television that seven miles at the bottom of the ocean, mm -hmm. seven miles deep. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom of the ocean, seven miles, there's another giant black hole. Danny Hillman Nabu who's been doing this research. He's a 
is leading geologist, top specialist in his field, and he's convinced that we're dealing with a 24,000-year-old monument, nice. which was built at the time when the world looked very different. During the Ice Age, when sea level was, was 400 feet higher than it is today, you didn't have the Malaysian Peninsula, you didn't have the Indonesian islands. They were all joined in one huge landmass. They didn't have part Sumatra. Of the of that landmass. Uh, and then the sea levels rose and most of it got submerged beneath the ocean. But structures like this have survived because they were never covered by the ocean. And and the evidence suggests that they were that they're the work of an unrecognized civilization of prehistory. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love I love that uh, that episode. What's the grass Tyson talking about? Well, whatever the grass Tyson talks about, you can be sure it's endorsed by the mainstream. Hell yeah. Um, He's a company man, he's a very good talker, quite entertaining, but he never goes against the trend. He's always he's always supporting what the mainstream view is rather than rather than challenging it in any way. And and I think it's important it's important to challenge mainstream views. They shouldn't allow they shouldn't be allowed to have a monopoly on on our understanding of the past and our understanding of who and, and what we are. Well, we really appreciate you because we need someone like you to tell these foolish people they need to rewrite history. I see down there, just underneath the grass Tyson, there's another passage of thoughts on flat earth conspiracy theories. Yeah, conspiracy theories theories theories. I have to say, the earth is not flat. <laughs> <laughs> we live on this huge ball in space, definitely. Um, and and, and uh, I, I just have no doubt about that. It's an unnecessary thing. Why does the earth need to be flat? Yeah. Is it, what, what is it, even if it was flat, who cares? Uh, I mean, we're here, as a, we're, we're here to live our lives and hopefully to live them well. But the earth is not flat. And the ancients knew this. The ancients knew this forever. The ancient Egyptians knew this. Everybody knows that the earth is that the earth is not flat. You just need to just need to stand on a on a cliff and look at a distant ocean horizon and see a ship come towards you, and you'll see the the tunnel of the ship first before you see the the deck of the ship. That's because it's coming around a curved horizon. Um, yet that that conspiracy theory survives. So this is the, this is part of the way that my work gets pissed on by archaeologists is that they lump me together with all kinds of theories that I don't buy into. I don't buy into the flat earth theory. I don't need aliens in order to explain the mysteries of our past. Yeah. The simplest, clearest explanation what about is that there's been a forgotten episode in human history. And and we have lost part of our story. So we we'll turn them on to the Sumerian culture. And, and um, that's what history. that's the 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 argument that I've been trying to put forward uh, to explain things that, that are there not were aliens actually. Matter. We're looking at some, I trust them more uh, than the the the, the, the dubious authors here. of the Bible. Uh, one one bit of them. That's an interesting map, the Piri-Rees map. Uh, and, and we have an episode in Ancient Apocalypse that touches on the mysteries of the Piri-Rees map. In this, in this uh, frame, it's actually de depicted on its side, but if you were to turn it vertically, uh, you will see that it's showing a bit of North America and South America, and it goes on down to Antarctica. Now, we went to the island of Bimini in the Grand Bahama Islands, uh, right off Florida. Uh, it's about 50 miles east of Miami, uh, and we, we 
dived at Bimini because there is this structure underwater at Bimini that's known as the Bimini Wells. Mm -hmm. And it's a classic megalithic structure. It's blocks of stone, 10 to 20 tons oh, each, which are laid out in a very regular pattern on the seabed, and which were covered by rising sea levels at the end of the ice age. And if we take the map on its side that's occupying the main frame there, and you'll see at the left-hand side of that map, there's an island. Uh, if you could bring the cursor down onto it, just keep going down. Keep going down. That big island there. Mm -hmm. That big island uh, occupies the place where the Grand Bahama banks are. Uh, and that big island does not exist. Didn't exist in 1513 when Terry reached through the map. Didn't it doesn't exist today that did exist during the Ice Age. And um, he shows it remarkably accurate, the right size. And what is pictured in the middle of it looks very much like an image of the Bimini Road, yeah. which is now which is now underwater. So we went to Bimini, we investigated the Bimini Road. I think that's in probably episode three of the series, uh, or maybe episode four. Uh, and and uh, then we looked at the implications for ancient maps, because Perry Reese is a Turkish admiral. He did not um, just draw that map out of nowhere. He drew that map in 1513. Using many but it, other he tells us in his own maps. handwriting on the map that it was based on more than 20 older source maps. And he suggests that those older maps were associated in some way with Alexander the Great. Uh, the implication is that they may have come out of the left library of Alexandria, which was a treasure house of ancient mm. wisdom until it was destroyed. Um, and and uh, it, it is well, alive. There's the Bimini the Road. Library. Yeah, it's a beautiful the place to dive. Have a I've done a lot of diving, but that's a very unchallenging dive because it's only about 20 feet deep. Mm -hmm. And it's lovely warm water. Uh, and it's, uh, and, and at the bottom of it, you have this anomaly, which again, archaeologists, because they don't like the idea that our ancestors were creating something like this during the Ice Age, they say, oh, it's entirely natural. That's not the Bimini Road that we're looking at there, whatever that is. But the Bimini Road is these huge pillow-shaped megalithic slabs. Yeah. Uh, so it's a the Bimini Road. And, and um, uh, archaeologists want it to be natural and say that it's just naturally formed beach rock. But I've seen beach rock all over the world, yeah. over and underwater, and none of it looks like this. And I took along as a diving buddy, uh, Michael Haley, who's a marine biologist who's done even more diving than I have around the world. And he also agreed that he's never seen anything like this. And furthermore, we found that these blocks are plopped, uh, propped up on little stones in some cases, so that we're using the stones to level the feature out yeah. where there was a slope underneath. So I'm, I'm confident it's man-made, but whether or not it's man-made, the fact that it appears on that map, drawn in 1513, based on, based on maps, that came from the Library of Alexandria yeah. uh, raises huge other huge other questions. And the Pinkerton map, um, it's worth making a point about that. The Pinkerton world map, uh, because um, let's find the picture shows the southern hemisphere and shows us keep going down. We want to see the view from the southern hemisphere. There it is. There it is. This is the um, the, 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 the Pinkerton world map, um, and I believe it was drawn in around 1813. Uh, and in this case, it did not rely on ancient source maps. It was because by that, by 1813, there was a lot of navigation, and and and, and uh, we had explored most of the world. So this map was based on the latest navigational and exploration knowledge in 2013. But obviously, if you look at it, something big is missing from the picture, <laughs> and that big something that's missing from the picture is Antarctica. It's not there. And the reason it's not there is because this was an honest map. It was based on what they knew in 1813. So the weird point is that Antarctica then does appear 
it does appear on much older maps. Uh, if you search Orontius Phineas world map, for example, O-R-O-N-T-A-E-U-S and Phineas, F-I-N-N-A-E-U-S, Orontius Phineas world map. That'll, that'll probably find it. That'll, that'll probably find it. Um, and and uh, go to the second row, shift over to the right, third from the third from the right. There, uh, at the tip of South America and at the tip of South Africa is Antarctica. Yeah. And that's on a map drawn in 1534 by Arantius Phineas, 300 years before the Pinkerton map. Did he know that Antarctica was there? And how does he know it's there? Because it's based on older source maps now lost. Even the Piri Reef map is only a fragment. The rest of that map is lost as well. We only got a little bit of the Piri Reef map. The maps get lost all the time, but what the Arachius Phineas map is preserving is knowledge of the world during the ice age. Somebody is exploring the earth and mapping the earth during the ice age. That's a bigger Antarctica than it is today. Much closer to South America than South America. Because that's how it was. During the ice age, it was a bigger, a much bigger continent than it is today. Can you say too, though, I'm just going to say that the middle of it is it explored of, of it, the middle of that article, like, you know, it's actually just there, it's actually, like, really, really, there's absolutely minimum exploration of Antarctica. There is some, there is some what they call core drilling. Yeah. Where, where drills are put down and bring up, and bring up ice cores. And a lot of the ice cores do date back millions of years, but they haven't explored, they haven't ice cored the whole of the Antarctic country. And, and there's so much there that the possibility of something else being found needs to be, needs to be taken into account. Um, there, there was a theory, uh, which I explored in my, in my first book that looked into the left civilization mystery, a theory, um, called Earth Crust Displacement. And in Fingerprints of the Gods, published in 1995, I investigated that theory. And what that theory suggests is that the crust of the Earth can sometimes move around the inner air layers of the earth uh rather like a, the comparison would be an orange with a with a loose skin mm. so the, the fruit of the orange stays in one place but the skin moves around it that would the, and the argument was that antarctica was once in a warmer zone uh, and, and it shifted south into the antarctic zone and became the frozen continent we see today um there are there are many issues that that have been dismissed by archaeology that need consideration the one thing that i'm left with after 30 years investigating this subject actually more than 30 years um is that we had a giant global cataclysm 12,800 years ago and it wasn't just a moment it lasted for 1,200 years until 11,600 years ago whatever arguments there are about the cause of this cataclysm some people say it was the sun i go with i go with about a hundred major scientists who believe that the earth ran into the debris stream of a fragmenting comet uh, comets uh, come in from deep space, and they can be trapped by the sun into an orbit around the sun that crosses the orbit of the Earth. The comets are loosely bound together, huge chunks of rock and ice, and they break up into multiple pieces. And, and the suggestion was that, that uh, 4,800 years ago, a disintegrating comet leaving a huge debris debris trail that the earth passed through it, and we were bombarded by, by probably a thousand fragments of this comet, some of them pretty large, a kilometer in diameter, landing on the North American ice cap in particular, some of them smaller, 
slow enough to burst in the air. Uh, one of those took place very, very near to Gobekli Tepe at a site in Syria called Abu Herrera. Uh, there was an air burst over Abu Herrera 12,800 years ago. And in every case, what do they leave on the ground? They leave platinum, iridium, quartz that's been melted at temperatures of more than 2,000 degrees centigrade, carbon microspherules, nanodiamonds, all of these things are the signatures of a comet impact. And it's, and it's the torrid meteor stream, uh, which you're showing on your screen now, which is the, which is the culprit. Uh, we still, we, we, we are still in interaction with the torrid meteor stream. It's an ancient stream. The astronomers are convinced that the torrid meteor stream is the breakdown debris of a giant comet, a comet maybe a hundred miles in diameter that broke up thousands of fragments, and in doing so, it spread out into a huge stream of debris. And the torrid meteor stream, the Earth, we can see in this diagram, the Earth passes through it twice a year. It passes through it in June, and it passes through it in November. It just finished the passage of the torrid meteor stream. And, and it's the same meteor stream that caused all the damage on the Earth 12,800 years ago. Uh, and, and the most recent definite damage from the torrid meteor stream was in 1908, the Kaliska event in Siberia, uh, where, where, where an object probably about 100 meters in diameter blew up in the sky and then flattened thousands of square miles of forest. Um, and that happened on the 30th of June. 1908 at the, at the heart of the world. Like a missile explosion. Absolutely. And then, in the case of the Younger Dryas, going back 12,000, there's the wrecked the forest of Siberia, where the, where, and that's a meteorite crater in, in Arizona, which is an earlier, an earlier event. Um, but the torrid meteor stream is a real and present crater in Arizona. Um, and and uh, the suggestion of the Vector See, the mystery of the Vector Tempe is not only did they created. Right at the end of this cataclysmic episode, the episode began 12,800 years ago with a cataclysm, with a sudden rise in sea levels. There was 1,200 years of absolute hell on Earth. Then there was another change of temperature. Global temperature shot up very rapidly. The last ice sheets collapsed into the sea. Uh, and uh, that's the end of this episode. That's the beginning of our modern age, effectively. And at exactly that moment, we're back to happy thoughts and thoughts by people who were only hunter-gatherers. They weren't a settled agricultural community. But, but, they, but they created this incredible structure, the largest monumental structure on Earth. And in the process of creating it, they became agriculturalists. But the structure came first, the agriculture came second. And again, this is a, an unpopular view with archaeologists. But I think what we're looking at in the Bethlehem is what I call a transfer of technology. The people who already knew agriculture and who already knew how to create megalithic structures yeah. came to Gobekli Tepe. They used the construction of Gobekli Tepe to mobilize the local population. And in the process, they taught them agriculture. And then they buried it like a time capsule because that same pillar 43 that we looked at earlier <laughs> spells out two dates. It spells out the date of 12,800 years ago when the cataclysm began, and it spells out our date today uh, at the different solstices, at the winter and summer solstices. So the suggestion is, and I pursued it in episode eight of Ancient Apocalypse, that what they were, what they were doing, why, why did they go to all that trouble to bury Gobekli Tepe? Yeah. Burying it was more work than making it. <laughs> yeah. They put a massive great hill on top of it. Why did they, why did they do that? And, and the suggestion is, it's a time capsule. 
and that they intended to pass down a message for the future. And they used astronomy to provide dates for that. And they said, this, a very bad thing happened in the time that we called 12,800 years ago, and a very bad thing is going to happen in the year I'm not in favour of government. 
I don't want big government. I don't want a world telling us what to do. I want no government. I'm an anarchist. Anarchist means without government. And, 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 that's, and that's all it means. I, I think governments are the source of so many of the problems that we have in the world today. The incredibly bad leadership that, that, we, that we see around the world. Very few, very few leaders uh, I would even want to pass the time of day with. And they are, they are driving us into madness. And it's in their interest to divide human beings from one another. So I would like to see a world where we recognize the beautiful variety of cultural difference, but we don't claim that our culture is superior then, to another culture, or that that culture is inferior to our we don't We don't make those claims. We recognize the beauty of the diversity, uh, and we give our loyalty to the human family not to a particular artificial construct called a nation. Um, and and I, I just don't understand why that makes people so angry, but, but apparently it does. Mountain cold refreshment. Made to chill. So, you don't think there'll be some chaos without a government, though? I'm curious. I think governments are a cause of the chaos. Okay. I think I think human beings left, yeah, left to their own devices, human beings are not chaotic. Mm -hmm. uh, Hunter-gatherer societies are not chaotic. They don't have governments, but they're mutually supportive, nurturing, yeah. loving, positive. They work together on common objectives, yeah. and and they're 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 very positive human cultures. Yeah. Um, I think governments are actually the cause of the problem, but then they use the propaganda. They use our money against us to create propaganda to teach us, to persuade us, to convince us that we can't possibly live without them, that we need these parasites, you know, sitting at the top yeah. in government, governing us and being presidents and being prime ministers and being ministers and of this or that, telling us what yeah. to do. And dividing us. And dividing yeah. us. Yeah. It's, in their in, it's in their interests to persuade us that we need them. Uh, but I don't think we do need them, and I don't think I don't think the governments are a source of stability in the world. I think they're a source of instability in the world. Look what's look what's happening in in Ukraine right now, and 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 the whole the whole situation that's that's going on there. This is a situation that's being manipulated by all kinds of governments to create more chaos and more misery, which then persuades us that we need more government. No, we need less government, little government as possible, minimal government. Um, and and I'll take this opportunity to. My particular rant, which I, which I rant about at every opportunity, is let's make it a law that nobody can run for high office until they have had at least a dozen very powerful psychedelic journeys. Ooh. Can be the mushrooms. Can be the mushrooms. They're, a wonderful, they're wonderful teachers. Can be ayahuasca. I don't mind what their psychedelic choice is, but they, they need to go do a dozen journeys. And they will be confronted with their own baggage because that's part of the the, the, the psychedelic experience that we that we are forced to face our dark side. We're forced to face our baggage, and we're given the choice: yeah. carry on being a piece of shit or actually change your life. <laughs> and I think that many of those many of those people who are running for world leadership positions, they would back out if they if they'd had a dozen ayahuasca or a dozen you know heroic journeys with mushrooms. They wouldn't want to be politicians anymore. They'd yeah. want to do something more useful in the in the world. And if by chance they stayed on as politicians, then they would be more educated, gentler, nurturing, kinder people than they are today. Yeah. 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 I agree. So what are we looking at there? DMT and human volunteers in London seeing the same entities. This is this is such an interesting thing. Um, psychedelics are enjoying a renaissance. 
in our society. There's no doubt about it. They're enjoying a renaissance. They demonized substances 20 years ago, but now we know that they have hugely valuable therapeutic outcomes. And that's particularly true for people with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, for people with deep depression, um, for people who are fearing death, for people who are suffering from terminal cancer and, and are fearing death. Uh, none of the big pharma drugs are any good, but psychedelics, particularly mushrooms, uh, will will lift people out of those states, will break the ESP. I'm, I'm pro-mushroom. I'm pro-mushroom too. The mushrooms are the ancient teachers of mankind. They have been co-evolving with us for millions of years, and, and they are our allies and our friends. And like good friends, they sometimes give us a thorough kicking, because sometimes we need a thorough kicking. That's what they, that's what they do. And, and, and so it's weird that our society has demonized these substances for the last 60 or 70 years. But now, you know, you can't hold out against the evidence. Yeah. Now the evidence is that these substances are nurturing and helpful to people, particularly to Helping people who are you. locked in a, in a narrow yeah. frame of mind. But this trial that's taking place at Imperial College in London is something different. They're not looking to see how can DMT be used to cure people with PTSD, although it may well do so. They're looking to see what actually is happening in the DMT experience. What is what is going on? How can I sell that? How can I make money from that? Well, that's not the first. That's not the first case at the, at Imperial College. Um, uh, ra rather, the first case is a it's a kind of exploration. Is there a real? Is there something real to the DMT journey? The entities that we encounter, the beings that we meet, the teachings mm. that they give us, the strange realm. I mean, Terence McKenna used to call them machine elves. You know, the, the strange realm in which they in which they operate. Is it just a fantasy of the brain, or are we locking into some kind of parallel universe, mm. uh, which we normally can't both see? Way. It feels both ways. Both ways. Yeah. yeah. The brain is involved. Imagination is involved. We 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 construe these experiences through the culture that we live in. But I've talked to a number of the volunteers on this trial that's taking place in London, uh, and they are what they're telling me is that a new technology is being used. Anybody listening will, uh, who's smoked DMT will know that DMT is a very short, extremely intense journey. It's, it's about yeah. 12 minutes. Yeah. Um, you are plunged, whether you like it or not. If you... If you get the right dose, if you underdose, you might not go over the edge. But if you get the right dose, you're plunged into a parallel reality. Oh, wow. And, and, and you're stuck there for the next 12 minutes. And it's so overwhelming and there's so much going on. A lot of people find it terrifying. Some people find it amusing. Uh -huh. Some people find it curious. But we don't really remember a lot of it. It's so you come out of the DMT state and you think, what the fuck happened to me? I don't, I don't even remember what happened to me. So in, in Imperial College, they're finding ways to keep people on DMT for an hour. Yeah. They're giving it as, a, as an intravenous drip, and it's going straight into the bloodstream. And, and um, that gives them time to adjust, to adapt to this strange landscape. And they're all coming back with the same kinds of descriptions of the same entities in the same environment. And I can't wait to see what the, what the outcome uh, of, that, of that will be. Um, I've smoked the MT multiple times myself. Um, I've had uh, some extraordinary experiences, some terrifying, some just intriguing. Every one of them was something that I don't regret. I'm glad that I had those experiences. I wish I could. I wish I could um, 
volunteers trial was taking place in London. But unfortunately, in 2017, um, I suffered from, uh, I came very close to death with a massive epileptic seizure, which came out of nowhere. Um, I, I, was, I was just hit with a, what they call a grand, ma grand mal chronic tonic seizure. I was thrashing around and shouting and roaring. Uh, my wife called the ambulance. We were upstairs. One ambulance crew wasn't enough. They had to bring another ambulance crew. They had to carry me downstairs uh, and out to the ambulance. I was still, I don't remember any of this. I was still roaring and shouting. Santa tells me that the ambulance was shaking with me, with me in it. They take me off to the hospital. Santa's in the ambulance. And at the hospital, they can't stop me seizing. I'm still, I'm still in the state of seizure. So the doctors say to Santa, um, we, you may lose him. And, and uh, at the very least, he's going to suffer brain damage unless we put him into a coma right now. And they, they put me into a, an induced coma, uh, which I was in for 48 hours. And the next thing I remember is the ventilator tube being hauled out of my mouth. And I'm saying, get this fucking thing out of me. I, and I, I didn't remember anything else. I was they're just total blank for all, of, for all of that period. But because of that, uh -huh. because I have epilepsy, because when you get it at my age, I'm 72 now, when, oh, wow. you, get, when you get epilepsy in childhood, you often grow out of it. Uh -huh. But when you get it as an adult, it's with you for life. And so at Imperial, I've tried to volunteer. At Imperial College, they said, we can't accept you because what happens if you die of epilepsy in the MRI scanner? Then our whole project will be closed down. Oh, um, yeah. But my wife, Santa, may well volunteer for that. She doesn't have, she doesn't have epilepsy. And meanwhile, I'll go on smoking DMT from time to time to explore, <laughs> to explore that realm. So how does it feel? How does it feel? Like, so you explained it, but like, so you said you have good, you have good uh, trips, bad trips. Listen, every time, every time I smoke DMT, I have to brace myself. I, I mean, like sit down, let's It's like, it's like, this is going to be rough, um, and I'm scared of it. But I really, I'm really curious about it, so I'm going to smoke this thing anyway. And the first two puffs don't quite take you there, and the third one, and then you do the fourth, and then you're gone. Uh, Blacked out. No, you're having experiences that are not of this world. Like seeing, like is it like you're, seeing things? Yes, seeing things, seeing things encountering entities who, who who speak to you, um, who give you instructions, who, who who beam telepathic messages into your brain. I know all of this sounds nuts, no, and no, most no. and most scientists. DMT is, it's naturally produced in the human body. We all make DMT. DMT is everywhere in nature. And, and it's a natural product of the human body, usually in sub-psychedelic quantities. But there's evidence that very close to death, the DMT rate rises. Or maybe something that helps us to transition. Um, there's evidence in the dreaming too long.
Yeah. Mushrooms, on the other hand, uh, they're mild. Are they're mild? Well, it depends how much. DMT, because it's very closely related to the DMT molecule. Um, I agree. Ancient teachers of mankind, we uh, have benefited enormously uh, from these gifts that nature has provided us with. And mushrooms are one of those gifts, and uh, so frankly is cannabis. Cannabis is another of those gifts. Thank God our society is finally waking up how absurd and ludicrous it is for cannabis to be illegal. What a stupid thing. In the same society that, that uh, glorifies alcohol, in the same society that glorifies, well, no longer glorifies, but certainly allows tobacco, uh, we, we, are going to, we are going to put, still there are countries that put people in prison for cannabis. Yeah. It's completely ridiculous. Alcohol is A, a very boring drug, and, and B, a very dangerous drug. It is. It's so bad. It's a very dangerous it's drug. It's so bad for the yeah. health. It's so bad It puts people into a violent frame of mind. Yeah. They get into fights. They drive badly. I'll tell you, if, if, if I had to choose between being driven by a stoned driver and a, dunk, a drunk driver, I would choose the stoned driver every time. Yeah. Every time. Because this, this thing that uh, alcohol is actually what I do, I'll yeah, yeah. that's an Arabic word. Yeah, yeah Arabic yeah. word just means, um, which is like a, which means like a, demon or something like that. Well, it's crazy that what we're drinking, we're putting our bodies there. Yeah, like, you know. and, and, and the thing to realize is that, that when when people drink alcohol, I, I drink alcohol now extremely rarely because it causes it causes migraines for me. But I will occasionally, very occasionally, have a glass of wine. Now, a glass of wine can taste nice, but nobody is drinking alcohol for the taste. Fundamentally, they're drinking alcohol for the change in consciousness that it produces. It produces a little bit of relief and it's that it's not that that whiskey or Depressive. that double whiskey or that vodka or that glass of wine and you just feel a little bit a little bit better a little bit and that's and so what our society is doing with alcohol there's a legalized altered state of consciousness yeah. uh, and yet other altered states of consciousness cannabis in many countries fortunately not in california i'm pleased i'm pleased that the american people are taking their power back state by state uh, and it's a, it's a it's a good thing to see, and I hope it will be an example to other countries in the world. But I'm, a, I'm allergic to alcohol. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Every time I drink it, I break out of the handcuffs. Exactly. Mike, it's amazing. Yeah, Mr. Graham. Yeah, you break out, yeah. <laughs> no, so, so uh, we live in a hypocritical society. Okay. Uh, which doesn't, uh, which doesn't embrace the lessons of our ancestors. Our ancestors were always using psychedelics. Uh, they are fundamental to all religions. They are fundamental to all great ideas. Uh, and this has just been written out of history. It's another one of those things that historians don't want us to know. So was a big lie. Unfortunately, there are a lot of big lies. Yeah, there are. There are. And the trick is to find the truth uh, in amongst them. Human population just hit 8 billion. What's next? I'm looking at the screen here. Well, that is a lot of diseases. I, I, the screen's looking me straight in the face. I can't, I can't help it. I have, to, I have to read it out. Human population just hit 8 billion. What's next? 9 billion? 
I'm not sure what's next. I think when when you look at the when you look at the the so-called population problem, it's not really a population problem. It's a distribution problem. Mm. Um, you know, we blame it all on the poor mm-hmm. and say, oh, the poor, they have so many children. Yeah. They're they're um, increasing the human population, but their consumption of the world's resources is minimal, minimal by yeah. comparison with one wealthy family right. in the in the industrialized West. Mm-hmm. We we have have small families now. Why why does why do the poor have large families? Because having a large family is an asset. Because your children will look after you in old age. Um, the moment that you solve the economic needs of people, they stop having they stop having so many so many kids. So so the problem is the problem is not population as such, only distribution, this world can support a much larger population than 8 billion, but we have to share it a bit more kindly. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, shouldn't all be locked up within, you, you know, within a few countries that are incredibly mega wealthy mm-hmm. and, and other countries that are, that, that, that are, that are starving. Um, it, it's not just a problem. Look after the people and the population will look after itself. I agree. What are your thoughts on religion and God? You've been studying. Sure. Um, I grew up in a in a religious family. Uh, my grandfather was a minister of the church. I recently discovered he climbed the Great Pyramid in 1916. Oh wow! He was a chaplain with British forces in Egypt during the First World War. Um, he was a minister of the church, um, and he was a sort of fire and brimstone preacher. Uh, my father was brought up in that Christian tradition, but he became a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then rather than take a plush teaching job in a, in a big teaching hospital in the UK, uh, he went out to India with me and, and my mom uh, in 1954. Um, and he was, um, he was a surgeon in a place called the Christian Medical College in Vellore in South India. Uh, so I spent four years of my childhood in South India amongst a Christian community and constantly receiving Christian propaganda. Um, I don't think at that age that I began to rebel about against it, but mm-hmm. I know that by the time I became a teenager, mm-hmm. I was very anti-Christian. I rebelled, and we all rebel against our parents, and I, I rebelled against mine, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to be a Christian, and I didn't want to kneel down in church, and I didn't like that entity that they called God, um, and I regarded myself as an atheist. Um, that's another one of those words which needs to be carefully defined, mm-hmm. just as anarchist needs to be carefully defined. Anarchist means without government. Atheist means without God. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't mean without a belief in the supernatural. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to believe that we're just accidents of chemistry and biology. You can believe, as I do, in life Spiritual. after death without being a Christian mm-hmm. or without being a, 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 a Muslim or without being a Jew. You don't, these are the three big monotheistic faiths that, that dominate the world today. And then, of course, there are millions of other faiths as well, which all have different ideas. Um, and, I mean, I think that the very fact that there are so many different ways of looking at this problem tells us that not any one of those ways is right. They, they, they can't all be right, since they all say such different things. So I think that next to government, uh, the three big monotheistic faiths uh, have been responsible for a great deal of misery and chaos uh, in this world. The Christian church uh, in its early days and right through until the 18th century was a vicious, murderous institution. I mean, can you imagine burning a fellow human being? 
or being stoned or in Islam being stoned to death a woman wears her hair too long or is unfaithful to her husband and, and, and she gets real, stoned to death real pissed at that. yeah I, I mean you know it, 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 it's so it's so cruel and, and so anti-human in, in every way that we would actually stone a fellow human being to death that we'd burn a fellow human being at the stake in the name of God what kind of God is that that's a demon that we're worshipping there, in my view, not not a god. And I know this is going to get me into trouble with lots of religious fanatics, but but the harm that the big religions have done in the world today far outweighs the good that they've done. And I think that's another area where we need to move forward as a human species. And it's an area where psychedelics are very helpful because they give us a direct experience of, let's call it the divine. They give us a direct experience of the divine. Nobody's teaching us. We're having that experience ourselves. And, and uh, I, I'm, the more people work with psychedelics in a serious, respectful way, uh, the more deep thought is going to is going to go into these mysteries. Because it will probably grow closer to the divine. Yeah, you don't call God, but well, yeah, but to the let's call it the divine or the universe, whatever we want to call it. But let's not call it God, uh, because God carries baggage. God carries, particularly in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, God carries the notion of this stern, bearded figure ah. sitting in the clouds, judging us. Um, he's just like a a president, but with divine powers. You know, he's it's a, it's a tribal chief uh, with with supernatural powers. We don't have to buy into that to accept that there's something incredibly mysterious in the universe. But it's an incredible mystery to be alive, to have this opportunity of a human life, to have this opportunity to learn and to grow and to develop. Of course, we're can't prove this. We're not just accidents of chemistry and biology. There is some kind of project unfolding here on Earth, and it's a project about the manifestation, the growth of, and the realization of consciousness. In my in my view, uh, without consciousness, we're nothing. We're just meat machines. Yeah. Consciousness is consciousness is what the human experience is all about, and that's why I so much detest laws uh, that seek to patrol our consciousness and to tell us what we may or may not do with our own bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, that you can't take that particular psychedelic. Yeah. Uh, and if you do, we're going to send you to prison and ruin your life. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in Britain, uh, if you're caught smoking cannabis, you're going to be sent to, very likely to be sent to prison, particularly if you're in possession of a quantity of it. The police chiefs in Britain actually are advocating now that cannabis should be upgraded from a class B drug to a class A drug, which is, which is the highest schedule. Wow. You know, and, 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 and yet those same police chiefs are drinking alcohol uh, every night in the pub. Yeah. Uh, what, what hypocrisy is that? As long as we do no harm to others. There should be no government, no institution, no authority figure telling us what to do with our own bodies and our own consciousness and our own health. Women's rights too. And women's rights too, women's rights too. of course, very much so. This is, this is, these, are, these are universal human rights, which, which should not be patrolled and monitored by government, government figures. We should not be told. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I believe God is love, though. Like, I don't know, I'm at a point in my life where... where you're right. So growing up, I grew up the same way, Christian faith, you know, and I always looked at it as if, um, praise the Lord. I always looked at it as, as if, like, you know, you always getting judged, right? And, and I got to a point, certain point in my life where I was like, you know what, like, I had to kind of like go back and relearn my faith, yeah. and like read more, yeah, and learn more. I kind of just look at God as. 
Huh? More so as a loving entity. Oh, come on in, baby. Yeah. And maybe more so the divine or what you're talking about. Maybe that space. Yeah. When you Aww. get to... Well, as long as, as long as we can extract that idea of God from the place that the three states manifesting okay. place that put it. Uh-huh. As long as we can extract that yeah. entity from that, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Uh, because Because... Really, what else is there in the universe apart from consciousness and love? Yes, that really matters. What do we What do we value at the end of our lives on this earth more than the love we've given and the love we've received? These are these are and and love has no price. No matter no matter how wealthy a person you are, it's something you can't buy, Uh, and it's something you can't you can't buy it to receive it, and you can't buy it to give it. Uh, That's 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 the beautiful thing. That's that's the love. And that's why this world so full of hatred, so full of fear, deliberately manipulated fear, so full of suspicion of one another, is not a good place for for, for human beings to to be right now. I'm looking at that screen again. (laughs) It's screaming to me. It's saying saying thoughts on simulation theory. Yes. Are we in a simulation right now? Are we in a simulation? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it time since it's legal to light up a little fire? Yeah. Would you like to smoke? Oh, uh, yeah. Sure. All right, guys. Let's get a choice. And while we do that, Mike, don't you have a gift to give him? Yes, I do. Where's the lighter, guys? <laughs> oh, it's special. We yeah. the lighter. Music yeah. in my ears. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so cool. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thank you. Don't worry about the I love it. Thank you very much. I'm all sorted for the next days and weeks. <laughs> um, okay, now I like this. So I normally, I normally vape, but this is, so this is going to be happy on the line. Yeah, it's hilarious. You guys still there? KMP. You get this gear at hotboxing.store. Right here, hotboxing.store, right here. This is your weed? You make yes. it? Yes, brother. Wow. Best in the world. Back in the Back in the Tyson's weed. It's nice. It's different. There's a difference between smoking and vaping. I I vape usually. I used to I used to smoke 40 cigarettes a day until oh. I was about 36 years old. Wow. And then I quit. Me too. And at exactly the time I quit cigarettes, I started smoking cannabis. Uh, <laughs> I, I hadn't smoked it much before, but then I I smoked it a lot, and and um. Then I found vaping, mm-hmm. and, and vaping is gentler on the lungs, but I must say, you get more taste with this. Yes. Yes. Taste. So it's also a simulation. So nice, sweetie. <laughs> yeah, are we, living, are we living in a simulation? A simulation theory. Uh, well, well that, makes, that makes perfect sense. If the project is to expand and grow and develop consciousness, uh, then it makes perfect sense to create a world. Uh, to, uh, and in order to create a world, you have to go further. You have to create a solar system. You have to create a universe yeah. for that solar system to 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 swim in. And and the, the real us is our consciousness, mm-hmm. which is which is separate from physical bodies, but which is capable of being immersed in physical bodies. So here we are. We're all avatars, and our consciousness is immersed in us. And the deal. The deal with this is that you don't know you're a simulation. Mm-hmm. If you knew you were a simulation, then you would not be able to benefit so much. Go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia fucking sucks. Yeah, Wikipedia fucking sucks. <laughs> you know, it really does. Um, I mean, I'm not saying everything on Wikipedia is. They have an agenda. Yeah, they definitely do. 
this the is this the ashtray over here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. How does? Well, I'll need another one of these before I do that. <laughs> how does he? That's me. How do how do I handle people when they don't believe stone cold facts I'm presenting? Um, I've come to. I've come to expect that that to be the case because I'm a contrarian, because I'm giving a controversial narrative which is not bought into by the mainstream. I don't expect uh, anything that I present to be believed. It's a long-term, it's a long-term project. You have to keep going. I've been, I've been attacked by archaeologists and their friends in the media uh, since the early 1990s, continuously. All TV programs have been made, BBC Horizon, trying to trash my work. Wow. Um, so I don't, I don't expect them to believe. I expect them to disbelieve, and I expect them to try to make me look as bad as possible, mm-hmm. and to, and, and to try to get people not to pay attention to my work. But my view is, if I just keep going, and I'm not alone, there are other people working in this field, great people who are working in this field. If, if, if we just keep going and keep putting out the contrary knowledge, mm-hmm. the contrary information, that gradually more and more people will take interest. The history of science teaches that this is how knowledge changes. Um, it, it's very difficult to shift an established system of knowledge. It's very, it's very difficult to just to wipe it away yeah. and replace it with something new. It takes a gradual accumulation of evidence mm-hmm. that cannot be explained by the established theory. Mm-hmm. And that evidence has to keep on being put forward against all opposition, uh, despite all the attacks. You just have to keep on putting it forward, and and eventually, little by little, it will become clear to the those who hold power in the established theory that the theory is laughable, uh, and that it and that it has to be replaced. So so rather than, of course, I don't like it when people call me a pseudo scientist or mm-hmm. a pseudo archaeologist. It really pisses me off. Mm-hmm. I, I want to try and explain this, um, which is which is a phrase. It's a phrase I often use. Okay, but I'm going to, the reason I'm going to explain it is because it came up in a comment on something I posted on Facebook. I, somebody was puzzled by this phrase. Don't okay. know if it's okay. I say, I say, I am no more a pseudo scientist than a dolphin is a pseudo fish. <laughs> okay. Now, what I mean by that is that dolphins look like fish, but they're not. But they're not fish. <laughs> they swim in the same waters as fish. Mm-hmm. They may even have some of the same interests as fish. Mm-hmm. But they're not fish. They're mammals. They're a totally different kind of creatures. Mm. Um, and and what I'm saying is, I am I am not any kind of archaeologist, let alone a pseudo archaeologist. I'm something else completely. I'm just basically a reporter. I'm a, I'm I'm, I'm a journalist, and that's and, and that's all I am. But then somebody somebody commented. That Joe Rogan tells me that I should never read comments. <laughs> Why? Because because both the positive exactly. ones and the, both the positive ones and the negative ones are bad for you. Yeah, they're big. The positive ones inflate your ego, and the negative ones make you depressed. You should be open to that as well. Anyway, I still do look at comments from time to time. And, and, and so some of the comments is, what does Hancock mean? Um, I'm no more a pseudo-archaeologist than a dolphin is a pseudo-fish. Is he talking about the dolphin fish? Um, it was completely misunderstood. It just went, Yeah. And was I, by saying that, were I undermining my own theories? There's some things I just don't understand on social media. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm old school. I have not yet 
uh, got to use a cell phone. My thumbs and fingers just won't work with that little keyboard. Plus, there's so much shit to learn. Yeah. To make it work, there's all kinds of stuff you have to know. So I just, I just don't want to, I just don't want to use it. I want to, I want to stay um, as old school as possible. I can't actually remember how I got to this point, but that's because of your dog. <laughs> Well, if it makes if it makes you feel better, it makes you feel I'm a professional athlete, and I don't. Know, it's a different time. That Mike, you obviously didn't have to deal with that, like uh, social media comments, people not. So I'm an athlete, so now I deal with it a lot. People always like you know comment on my stuff. Yeah, but in the paper. Yeah, yeah, you heard about it in the paper. Yeah, totally. But you get people saying shit about you today. Huh? You people are still saying shit about you today. I'm still saying shit about them. Mm. Yeah. Well, the even playing field. But in your in your boxing career, social media was not was not a thing. No, it came it came afterwards. Yeah. What's your feeling about that? Would it have been better if there was social media? No, then? I don't know. It would have been the same thing. People would have been mad. People would have been shooting people. Yeah. yeah back then, it was just very violent. Life was a little shit in the eighties. Mm. It was a different world. But do you think it's worth shit today? I think it's better. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to hear that. Absolutely. In the 80s, everybody was dying. Everybody died of drugs, mm-hmm. diseases, guns, knives. It was just murder up in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Drugs, guns, crap. It was a whole generation of them.